Section 9 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.J. Frank. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 9 Marine Punishments. The days of whipping and pickling poor Jack are over. Voluminous acts of Parliament now shelter the seaman, who indeed is represented as being so very philanthropically legislated for, that owners have no remedy against him but the magistrate and the prison cell, whilst the captain has nothing to depend upon but the official log-book, the revolver, and those ancient arrangements originally called bilboes. It was very much otherwise in those bygone times, when the fine old English gentleman flourished. There are extant certain instructions drawn up by Robert Earl of Essex, and delivered by him to Howard, Lord High Admiral, to be read twice a week to the crews of ships after divine service. "'Picking and stealing,' says my lord, "'you shall severely punish, and if the fault be great,' you shall acquaint us therewith that martial law shall be inflicted upon the offenders captains are also to forbid swearing brawling dicing and the like the wrongdoers to be punished now what sort of sentences were delivered in those days sir william monson who was at sea a little later than that time has told us a captain says he may punish according to the offences committed that is putting one in the bilboes during pleasure, keep them fasting, duck them at the yard-arm, or haul them from yard-arm to yard-arm under the ship's keel, or make them fast to the capstan and whip them there, or at the capstan or mainmast hang weights about their necks, or to gag and scrape their tongues for blasphemy or swearing. This will tame the most rude and savage people in the world." so one should suppose until i met with this passage i was under the impression that the punishment of keel-hauling originated with the dutch to keel-haul is to drag a man under a ship's bottom at pleasure until the expression of his countenance that has turned from purple into black warns you that one more dip must settle him this villainous practice was common among the dutch very often it was inflicted as one only of several other punishments. In Rogawine's voyages, a man falls drunk and abuses the cook, and in a fury stabs himself. The utmost care was taken of him till his wounds were cured that he might be made an example of. When recovered, he was treated thus. First of all, he was declared infamous at the foremast. He was then keel-hauled three times— then received three hundred lashes, and finally his right hand was fastened to the mast with his own knife. As though all this should not suffice, he was chained to the forecastle and only half starved, the captain not choosing that he should die, as he intended to set him on shore on the first barren uninhabited island they came across. Such an island was encountered off the coast of Brazil, about three leagues from the coast and to it the miserable creature was carried, and there left to perish. In the account of Jacques Lehermite's travels by sea, 
a surgeon is suspected to have poisoned some of the crew. To make him confess, the Dutch tortured him by fastening heavy weights to his feet, drawing him to a great height, and then letting him drop. Puzzled by his obduracy and insensibility, they searched him for a charm, and found a bag hanging round his neck containing the skin and tongue of a serpent. On this being taken from him, he confessed and was beheaded. I am not sure that marooning, that is, putting a man ashore on a desolate rock to die of thirst and hunger, was not the most savage and cruel of all the old punishments. Sir Francis Drake offered Dofty the alternative of being marooned or losing his head, and the man chose death by the sword. It is not in the power of the imagination to conceive of the anguish of a man left to perish on a barren island, seeing his ship gradually sinking in the distance and fading out of sight, gazing round the horrible solitude of the sea, seeking for water and finding none, for food, and perhaps beholding scarce so much as a fragment of weed. It is noteworthy that, brutal and revolting as were the morals and practices of the old filibusters, their discipline, as arranged among themselves, was mild in comparison with the punishments captains of ships were licensed to inflict upon their companies. Their code established a principle of perfect equality, and so far as I can collect, the penalty of death was only imposed upon deserters, and upon any one who introduced a woman disguised into the vessel. This article being due to a determination of these rogues to extinguish the least occasion for jealousy, so that they might all live together in brotherly love. No doubt the sailor in former times required a very taut hand. We were incessantly at war, the press was constantly very hot, and the king's forecastles were filled with men who had been torn from their wives and families, who had been forced out of peaceful trade to ply the small arm or to man the great ordnance, and who, until time had worn out their rage and grief, were very fit for treasons, stratagems, mutinies, and intestine wars. But the ferocity with which they were handled in olden times was monstrously in excess of their guilt, and that their patriotism should have brightly burned in so dark and suffocating an atmosphere of brutality, must prove, I think, that the application of such a gentle discipline as that of to-day would have won for this country even grander results yet than were achieved for her by those generations of mangled and pickled tars. We read easily of five hundred lashes, but it was a fearful flogging. Seven bells, half-past seven, came, says the late James Hannay, and the hands were turned up to attend punishment. The ship's company gathered together in the waist and gangways in dense masses, close up to the mainmast. The officers with swords on were on the quarter-deck. On the starboard side of the deck, just abaft the gangway, stood the apparatus of punishment, two capstan bars secured against the bulwarks, with a grating between them and a grating below, constituted the simple preparation. Near this was the master-at-arms, with a little cup of water for the benefit of the victim, and two boatswain's mates were in attendance with canvas bags containing the implements of torture. 
take away God's sky and the free sea round about, and you might have fancied you were in the Inquisition chambers in their palmiest days. The cruelest feature of this punishment was the irresponsibility of the captain with regard to the number of lashes ordered. A passionate man might go on increasing the beating as his rage was augmented by the sullen curses and mutterings of his sufferer. And there was no law short of the surgeon's finger on the culprit's pulse to tell him when to stop. Marriott's novels abound in instances of brutal captains whipping men's backs into rags for offences small enough to be fully expiated by stopping a day's grog. There had been much said, and very properly said, about the ruffianism of the old Yankee and the contemporary Nova Scotian skipper. But for examples of miserable and cowardly ruffianism in the treatment of seamen, I do not think we need look far afield. Our own naval and mercantile marine annals are only too full of them. In the merchant service, unhappily, the law nearly always sided with the captain. Dana points to this in a supplementary chapter to his well-known sea story. He shows how the shipmaster came forward with a cloud of witnesses to his respectability and humanity, how his owner said he had employed him for so many years, how one neighbor testified to the punctuality with which he attended divine service when ashore, how another neighbor deposed to his tenderness as a husband and his devotion as a father, and so on whilst of the poor seamen who brought the action, nothing was known saving that their learning went no further than to qualify them to sign their name by a cross, and that they presented a very rugged and ragged aspect in their rough hair, old jackets, and sea-green boots. Last century, a midshipman in the East India Company's service, sued his captain for whipping him. He said he had been flogged with a cat of nine tails and left to lie in irons for two days. The captain pleaded special justification, and Lord Camden dismissed the case, saying that there did not remain the least imputation on the captain's character. This is a typical instance. A man had to kill a sailor before the law looked at him, and then he needed only to show that if he had not done the seaman to death by flogging, ironing, and starving him, the ship might, he never could prove she would, have gone to the bottom. Some excuse for excessive whipping in olden days might perhaps be found. When the cat o' nine tails commanded the wind, flogging was very well. Time was when French mariners believed that nothing more was necessary to obtain a fine breeze than to flog a boy at the mast. Negroes were preferred, possibly because it was deemed they were sent into this world to be thrashed. They turned the boy's or man's back to the quarter whence they wanted the wind blow, and then beat him. The notion was not peculiar to the French, for I find that the Arab and Barbary corsairs, during the Middle Ages, flogged their Christian captives when their prayers for a favorable wind proved of no avail. Many desperately tragical scenes have resulted from the spread-eagling of a man at sea ready for the whip, by the crew throwing themselves upon the captain and mates, and freeing the culprit. 
the old punishment of stopping a man's grog is pretty nearly as dead as marooning or keel-hauling simply because it is the rarest thing in the world now to hear of ships in which spirits are served out to the seamen formerly it was felt as a hardship that many men would have been glad to exchange for twenty or thirty lashes because originally the allowance was handsome half a pint a day moreover prior to seventeen forty the spirits given to the seamen were undiluted. In that year Admiral Vernon started the practice of adding water to the rum, which thereupon obtained the name of Grog from the sailors, who, so the story goes, took the idea from Old Grogram, the familiar title of the Admiral, suggested by the material of the coats in which he went dressed. Mastheading, as we all know, was the peculiar punishment of midshipmen who did not choose to behave themselves. Sailors would not have been treated so. They were too useful about the deck. To send a lad on to the foretopsail yard for a few hours' airing was to pay the youth's capacity of working a poor compliment. In the merchant service they would have made such culprits slush down the royal mists or tar down a royal stay or chip the ironwork, or polish the brasswork. Thus, like Dickens's moral pocket-handkerchiefs, the punishment would have combined professional instruction with the other purpose it was designed to fulfill. Hanging was very common at sea. They ran a man up to the yard-arm for stealing or broaching cargo, just as they hanged for robbery ashore. It was the usual penalty for mutiny. I once saw a marine hanged in China for striking his superior officer. The ceremony was not a little impressive, with the thunder of a gun, the breaking of the death signal from the ball in which it had mounted to the masthead, the swift soaring aloft of the figure of the malefactor, its abrupt drop, and ghastly pendulous swaying. At home this hanging business went on with stereotyped precision. The prisoner, attended by the provost-marshal with a drawn sword, ascended the gangway and walked with a firm step to the platform, where he usually acknowledged the justness of the sentence. Poor wretch! Then the fatal bow-gun was fired, and he was launched into eternity at the starboard foreyard arm. All the boats of the fleet, manned and armed, came in a procession to the spectacle, and the picture was made uncommonly dismal by a yellow flag at the masthead of the admiral's ship, the signal for an execution. Those were taut-handed days. Nor was it only Jack who was punished. A man named Hewitt, a purser, for obtaining a small stock of meat from the victualling people under false pretenses, was sentenced to be imprisoned for two years in Newgate, and during that period to stand in the pillory for one hour, between the hours of twelve at noon and two in the afternoon, in the public street near Charing Cross, opposite to the gates of the Admiralty. And this so recently as 1802. Think of the pillory in these days as a contribution to the solution of ordnance and other difficulties. But the truest policy, then as now, occurs in the advice an old naval captain sent to his son in a letter. Speaking of the captain, he wrote, 
let me earnestly recommend it to him not to show too great an inclination to punish because he has power on the contrary i would have his humanity display itself even in his chastisements punishment is of too serious a nature to be wantonly inflicted or made too free with on every slight offence a gentle reproof often reclaims besides to punish with the utmost rigour is brutality not justice the good and lion-hearted somaras acted on this principle with notable success whilst off the spanish coast the spirit of mutiny showed itself in the squadron he commanded one of the worst of the mutineers was a ship's carpenter who had on many occasions proved himself an intrepid and excellent seaman he was tried for his life lord then sir james somaras sent for him and by appealing to the culprit's feelings worked so thorough a reformation in him that he became one of the most loyal of his sailors this same man was afterwards captain of a gun at the battle of the nile and was instrumental after the action in preserving the peuple souverain from foundering another instance may be found in admiral duncan's life there were symptoms of mutiny on board the venerable the admiral ordered all hands on deck and addressing one of the mutineers said do you want to take the command of this ship out of my hands yes replied the man duncan raised his sword but was prevented from running the man through by his chaplain and secretary he cried out let those who will stand by me and my officers pass over immediately to the starboard side that we may know who are our friends six of the crew alone remained they were seized ironed and lodged in the gun-room from whence the account goes on pointing the moral i am aiming at they were afterwards liberated one by one after showing those signs of real penitence which induced the admiral by well-timed acts of lenity to endear himself if possible still more to the faithful crew we have learnt the lesson in this age and are surely not worse off in consequence we no longer suffer men to be hanged whipped pickled tarred and feathered marooned keel-hauled hoisted and dropped with a few hundred pounds of iron seized to their feet at the sweet will of the lord's paramount of the quarter-deck the merchant sailor as well has found friends and protection in the law if he be maltreated now it is at the peril of the man who abuses his power end of section nine recording by m j frank portland oregon